Have you ever heard the sounds of the sea? Of whales and dolphins, snapping shrimp, boat noise, and military sonar? Welcome to Unsonorous Seas. My name is Barry Killin, and I'm an artist from the Isle of Iona. Join me as I encounter vastness, complexity and wonder in the sounds of the seas that surround the chain of Scottish islands known as the Hebrides. This story begins with a stranded whale and takes us deep into another world of human and non-human sounds. Come listen to the sea and what it can reveal to us. Follow the story online at unsonorousseas.com. I'm really happy to be speaking to Alison Lomax, who is the director of the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, and Jenny Hampson, who is a science officer with the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust. And we're in Tobermory today, and I hope that Alison and Jenny are going to be able to talk a little bit about the Trust's work, how the public can get involved with what the Trust do, and how that data and information that is collected feeds into some wider knowledge and policies and development for the protection of species in the Hebrides and globally even. So welcome Alison. I've probably not done a terribly good job of introducing the Trust's work but maybe you can just expand on that for me and talk a little bit more, give us an overview of the Trust, how long it's been running and what its aims and objectives are. Well thanks for having us on the podcast. So the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, we are a marine conservation charity based here on the Isle of Mull in Tobermory, and we have been carrying out a long-term programme of monitoring and research on the populations of whales, dolphins and porpoises on the west coast of Scotland, and we've been doing that since 1994 when the charity was founded, so that's over 25 years, and ultimately we are aiming to learn more about the animals that live here the pressures that they may be facing and what we can do to make their lives easier, what we can do to protect those animals in these waters. And the reason it's so important in this area, in the Hebrides, is because it's an incredibly special place for whales, dolphins and porpoises. It is a really important habitat for these animals. It's very biodiverse, so there's lots of different species that live here. So far, 24 different species have been recorded around Scottish mm. seas. So that is approximately a quarter, well, it's over a quarter of the, the global species that you get of whales, dolphins and porpoises. So a lot of different animals can be found here. Some are more uh, regular visitors mm-hmm. than others. Um, but yeah, it's an incredibly biodiverse area. And the reason for that is because there are a number of different habitats. It's very productive, the waters here. There's lots of food, um, lots of different waters are mixing, and that creates an environment where lots of different species can thrive. So, you know, apart from the biodiversity, we're also really interested in looking at the pressures these animals face. And globally, whales, dolphins, and porpoises, they face huge pressures in our seas. Our seas are becoming busier, noisier, more polluted, and that is the same in Scottish waters as well. Mm. So as well as looking at and monitoring the animals, we're also looking at and monitoring the environment which they live in, which tells us about you know how their populations are doing. 
And it's only recently becoming better um, understood how important wheels are in terms of carbon capture. I read George Monbiot's quote recently that whales are the most benign form of geoengineering that, that exists and that they have the capacity to capture more carbon than a thousand trees. Yeah, it's absolutely incredible. They are what we call ecosystem engineers, so uh, really important for a number of functions in the marine environment as well as carbon capture. So these animals, they play a really vital role moving nutrients around mm. and making a sort of nutrient cycle, as well as storing carbon and storing that in their bodies, as well as taking it into the deep seas when they, they die. So yeah, that's a really important role that they play. And there's a beautiful phenomenon called whalefall, which both the composer and I responded to in the exhibition, and I responded to it visually, and he responded to it with sound. And can you just say a tiny bit about that, Alison? It's such a beautiful legacy that a whale leaves when it dies, isn't it? Yeah, so ultimately when whales die, they tend to sink to the ocean floor, and with them, the large amount of body mass that they have also sinks to the ocean floor. And in that that deep environment, things are very slow, things move very slowly. And so there are animals that will feed on that carcass mm. and, and actually move that carbon and that, that, that biomass back into the food chain. But it happens very slowly. And that is also a way of kind of capturing that carbon, capturing that biomass and storing it at depth as well. So it's, it's, it's quite an incredible part of their life cycle and, mm. and part of their, you know, what, what happens after they, they die as well. And they can sustain life for something up to 70 years after they've died. I read that in Rebecca Giggs' book, Fathoms, recently. So you're quite a small team at the Trust, though, aren't you? Yeah, there's about well, there's, uh, 10 full-time equivalent members mm. of staff that work at HWDT, from our engagement programmes that are on mainly land-based to our research programmes on the boat. So, yeah, it's quite a small, small team of us. I know you rely on the public, helping you and supporting you to collect data. And one of the experiences that I've had is on board Silurian, your research vessel. And Jenny, I wonder if you can talk a little bit more. You have kind of three main ways of engaging with the public. And the Silurian is probably kind of the most exciting and kind of hands-on experience that you offer. Yeah, definitely. So you can come and be part of our team. You can come and join us and collect data in a few different ways, like you say. I think the really important thing to say first, though, is that it's really valuable data and we really rely on people to get involved with our work. Every single data point that has been recorded in the past 25 years has been done so by members of the public and we really couldn't do it without them. So yeah, you can join us on board Silurian, which is our beautiful research boat. She's really special. She's loved by a lot of people and we do line transect surveys through the Hebrides. So we travel in straight lines and we count the different whales and dolphins that we see along the way. Honestly, the most amazing thing is the team that's on board, the people that you meet, you get to go to some of the most beautiful places mm. in the world. I'm biased, but... Mm. And, yeah, you get to have these incredible encounters with whales and dolphins and contribute to conservation science. It's a really incredible experience. I'd really encourage people to come and join us on board. The dates for 2023 have just gone live now, so you can book them on our website. Um, or if you've got any questions about it, please get in touch with a member of the team, because um, we love to talk about it, as you can probably tell. <laughs> uh, yeah, so other ways that you can get involved with us, if you don't fancy coming on a 7-10 to 10 day research cruise, anyone can report to us through our app, Whale Track. Um, so if you are stood on a headland, being windswept by, or like lashed by waves, anywhere on the west coast of Scotland, and now 
anywhere all over Scotland, actually. Mm. You can report sightings of whales, dolphins, porpoises to us. We also take sightings of basking sharks, turtles, if you're lucky. And all of that data feeds into our wider data, which gets given to policymakers and government to help impact meaningful change, hopefully. It was a very, very wet day on Sunday and I was travelling back home to Iona and I stopped to pick up two people who were soaking wet and waiting for the ferry and they were from Belgium. And they had been at Glengorm, which I know is one of your your whale trail points. And they didn't see anything, but they were super excited. They had, you know, so they had been particularly looking for Minky. So they knew all about the whale trail. They knew about the whale track app as well. And they had actually also been to the exhibition, believe it or not. So for me, it was just like two random people and they knew about the work of the trust. And I thought, well, that's the success of of the outreach of the whale trail and the whale track app because it really does engage people it kind of brings back that childlike feeling of going in a treasure hunt so you you really you're walking with intention you're you're exploring landscape and seascape with intention and i think that the whale track app is so visual and so easy to use and i think that that evokes that feeling of expectation and excitement which is so important it's such a good way of describing it. Mm, yeah, yeah, it's really great. And and it happens quite a lot. Coming to and from Mull, I was on the ferry coming back from uh, back to Mull from Oban on Friday and I overheard some people uh, that I recognise as local to the island talking about looking going looking for a whale mm-hmm. that had been spotted. And I thought, oh, I wonder wonder if where they found out about that. And I had a look at the app and, yeah, just an hour earlier, someone had reported a minky whale from yes. the ferry. So I was, I was like, okay, so a whole load of us were on the deck looking to see if this whale was still around. And it's just a really great way of sharing that experience and hopefully helping other people spot things, but also, you know, telling folk that things are around and you know by sharing your sightings with hwdt you're also sharing them with this whole other community of people that are actively looking and hoping to see things as well which is is a really lovely element of it no for sure i mean i was on the ferry on friday um doing that same run actually i had my headphones in i was listening to music but i saw that very definitive low rise of the minky in the dorsal a little bit further back that you know it's you know it's not porpoise or dolphin and of course i got that silurian moment and i just went minky So that was quite embarrassing. So yes, yeah, so I I mean having experienced the Silurian research trip in 2021 during Joint Warrior, I know how kind of embodied that learning is. So you you learn so much simply because you are living it for, for 10 whole days and you can't you can't not learn. It's such a great way to teach people and it I found it a fantastic way for somebody like me from a non-science background to become involved in processes like using the hydrophone and watching the computer software for the detection of the harbour porpoise. I found it a really easy way to learn more about those processes and become immersed because you were immersed in them by being there in the job for 10 days, 24-7. You couldn't not just learn and be excited and be completely and utterly absorbed in the task at hand. 
And I know that it's not just adults that you invite on the boat. You also do your team trips, Jenny, as well. Yeah, so everyone that joins us on board gets trained up, like you've just said, Mm. in all of our scientific protocols. So that's spotting, but it's also listening on the hydrophone and doing photo ID work as well. So taking photographs of recognisable individuals. Yeah, so we do also have teens come on board. So 16 and 17 year olds, uh, we do two trips for them a year. It's an amazing way for people that want to get into marine conservation to get some experience, add to the CV, but also just passionate kids that want to give back, particularly if they've got kind of eco anxiety. Mm. It's an amazing way to find a positive outlet for that. Mm. And the kids that come on board always have the most brilliant weather, I have to say, and have such an incredible time. Yeah, get brilliant sightings. Yeah, it's an amazing thing to be a part of, really. And I think what you said there about the anxiety around climate change and the environment, especially amongst younger people, it's so important to have those positive experiences. So for young people to come and experience the presence of cetaceans and the excitement and the joy of seeing these animals in their native habitat, then Mull is a wonderful place to come to do that. Not Absolutely. just not just on board the boat, but as you've already said, by using the Whale Track app and by following the Whale Trail around the island um, and also on mainland Scotland as well now. Yeah, exactly. So the Hebridean Whale Trail is an amazing initiative. It really encourages people to immerse themselves in the environment, slow down, Mm. speak to someone. And it is really also about building that community that you've talked about. Speak to someone, experience it, and also contribute to marine conservation by reporting your sightings. But all along the whale trail, it's made of mostly places that we know are good to spot for whales and dolphins from land. So it's really low impact. Um, You can see completely natural behaviors and yeah, just watch from a distance. Sometimes you can have the most incredible experiences that way from land, watching from afar. But also, yeah, you can meet some incredible people that have got some amazing stories. They can tell you about the marine heritage of the area and that kind of interaction historically that's happened between people and whales and dolphins in the Hebrides um, yeah, and in the Highlands as well. And you also have your Discovery Centre in Tobermory. We do, yeah. So if you're ever in Tobermory, please come and see us. We do walks and guided headland watches and different talks and a massive variety of activities that people can get involved in. Um, So it's all about a telling people that we have all these amazing species here but how they can get involved and how they can give back. One of my favourite things is doing the headland watches at Glengorm. It's one of my favourite sites, it's a Mm. beautiful site on a usually very windswept headland but I've been so lucky I've had some incredible sightings from there minke whales common dolphins even killer whales oh my goodness um Mm. yeah it's an amazing place and when you get the opportunity to show people these species often for the first time yes yeah it's just really amazing to be part of that experience for them Yeah, no, and I'm sure that must be a big part of what keeps the community engagement aspect really alive and vital for the the team at the Trust, because watching people experience that that engagement, then you're sharing that, aren't you? You're sharing that experience with them. Yeah, definitely. That's also something that I absolutely love on Silurian, is the first time that people hear dolphins whistling on the hydrophone Mm. and just seeing their faces light up. Um, You can't replicate that. It's such, yeah, it's really a privilege to be part of that. Yeah, Yeah, it's a very joyous experience. And it's also really important for conservation as well. I think it it can sometimes, we forget that connection Mm. potentially sometimes of how important education and engagement is to furthering conservation objectives, furthering the, the, you know, the change we want to see to protect these animals. If 
the public at large aren't invested in, care about, and sort of understand that these animals are number one here, and number two facing pressures. You know that we're already so far behind where we need to be to actually, you know, protect the animals. Mm. So you know the data and the research is, is absolutely vital. It underpins everything. But you, you you can't do anything with that if you you don't have people who care. You don't have people who want to see the animals protected and care about them. And that's where the education and engagement part of it comes in. So they are so interlinked in terms of conservation. It's it's really vital. It's a very important point, Alison. And it is a real privilege to see these animals in their own habitat. And then that sparks that human to non-human connection that is so vital for the public to keep engaged with the work that the trust are doing to provide you with the data that you need. So it is a very symbiotic relationship. So there must be a huge amount of data that's flowing in. What happens to it and how do you manage it? And presumably you share it with other conservation and and marine bodies? Yes, we do. It's a huge task. We generate a lot of data. Thank you, everybody who contributes. <laughs> and it is not a small task to manage no. uh, that data and get that data out there. So we have ultimately a, a large database that all the information goes into. And that takes a lot of uh, effort in terms of processing, uh, error checking, making sure that data is, is prepped and cleaned and ready to be used by researchers, whether that be internal researchers within our own team or external researchers. And it is really important that that part of it is done because it is really vital to share the information and that's a big part of what our team do is data sharing so Mm. we work with researchers in all sorts of places we have a number of researchers across Scotland that we work with regularly on projects and also contacts in other parts of the world so it's quite a complex and large-scale piece of a puzzle ultimately to be able to understand and research the complex environment that is the marine environment and the animals that live there and whales and dolphins they are incredibly long-lived they are wide-ranging so they travel great distances so to be able to effectively monitor and research populations that live so long and move so far you need really good collaboration so you need people all over the world Mm -hmm. who are researching animals and sharing that information and you know being able to see that whales are moving from one part of the world to another and how their populations may be doing in different places so yeah data sharing is a really big part of what we do and it's really important to building that picture it's like creating a huge map isn't it like mapping the presence and mapping the absence and the journeying in between And how does the data feed into policy? So we also share the data as well as with researchers who study the data, analyse the data and produce papers and um, answer questions. We also share the information with statutory nature conservation agencies, so uh, Nature Scott in Scotland, Marine Scotland, and also um, JNCC, which is a UK-wide agency. And basically those organizations have an obligation a legal obligation to monitor whales and dolphins and so they collate information from a wide range of sources including hwdt to basically monitor those animals and understand what their populations are doing there are government-led surveys that happen sporadically Mm -hmm. um, but they don't happen very often they are very expensive Mm -hmm. so the information that organizations like hebridean whale and dolphin trust provide which are ongoing continuous long-term year after year data they plug those gaps and they help to answer the questions that you know you would get in those gaps of 
when the government surveys can happen. So yeah, we provide that information to those agencies and also we provide information when there are particular conservation programs happening. So one example of this is the Marine Protected Areas program mm-hmm. that happened recently in Scotland. The government were looking at areas where marine protected areas could be put in place so we were able to provide the data that we collect as evidence for where areas are important in Scottish waters for whales and dolphins because what we can do with our data is look at year after year Mm -hmm. continuously where are the areas that are always important where are the areas that these animals are seen year after year regularly and those are the areas that you want to protect those are the areas that are important for those animals so we were able to provide data to that process and we do now have designated areas on the west coast of scotland for harbour porpoise minke whale rizzo's dolphins and also basking shark so the data does really go into making a big difference in terms of policy as well yeah it's a huge outcome isn't it it's a really positive outcome and that wouldn't have happened without the legacy that the trust have from 20 years of data gathering and 25 years of being an expert in this area I suppose as an organisation. Yeah it's absolutely the long term uh, element of this it's about being able to compare over a long period of time and being able to demonstrate over a long period of time an area is important and and that's where the real power and value of the data that we collect comes in and we really couldn't do that without the public as I say you know the government have lots of resources and they can do these surveys that they do once every six years, once every 10 years, but actually it's the continuous nature of long-term data and you only really get that if you are involving the public, if you have volunteers who are willing to put the time and effort in and yeah, we're really grateful to all the people that have have contributed to that over the years because without that you wouldn't have that really powerful data set that tells us so much about the environment but also will continue to tell us a lot more about the environment. Um, When we have data over a 50-year period, the first 10 years of that data set is going to be so interesting. Um, it already is interesting, but it's going to only grow in what we can learn from it and what it can tell us about how the world is changing and what we need to do to protect the environment. Yeah, it's such important to have those benchmarks, not just at a national level, but a local level in the way that the Trust works so closely with the people of Mull and with the visitors to the island as well. And also just personally, you know, that what we know as our benchmark as a child will be different from the next generation and the next generation that are coming after us, that their benchmarks and understanding of what is normal and healthy will be entirely different. Yeah, the the shifting baseline syndrome, Mm. and you talk about this a lot, Jenny, as well, don't you, is such an interesting sort of way of looking at how we we perceive the environment around us we perceive it based on our own context and that is very different from the context as you say of our fathers grandfathers Mm. whoever else and it's really documenting that as it's happening that allows us to avoid that shifting baseline issue and you know people would come to us and say well you've got this amazing environment it's really biodiverse lots of species they're doing great aren't they and we actually can't answer that question mm. other than by looking at the past. And in comparison to the past, no, they're not. Yes. You know, These animals, there were many more species here. There were bigger, bigger populations here. And whilst we can be really grateful for what we have and what we can see and what we can experience now, it doesn't compare to, you know, even 50 years ago. So it's that shifting baseline that is, is so important to address through data collection, but also communicating those issues with the public to really see how our environment's changing and and how it is depleting slowly over time and we may not even be noticing it. Mm. 
it's not just those baseline figures that the data is giving, it's also when there's a specific incident, the, the data that the public provide is so important, isn't it? I was talking to Dr Anne Brownlow of the Scottish Marine Animal Stranding Scheme a couple of weeks ago, and as you know, the project on Sonorous Seas takes the unusual mortality event of 2018 as a starting point to look at anthropogenic sound pollution and the impact of that uh, on, on the ecology of the seas around the, the Hebrides or the health of the, the seas around the Hebrides. And Andrew was saying that it was actually the public sightings of the locations of the whales which, which came ashore already deceased mm-hmm that gave them the really, really valuable information that they needed to try and track back and to try and do their, not so much their forensics on the bodies because they were so um, decomposed by that point. I think most of them that it was very difficult to get definitive evidence of what may have happened, but more that the locations, the sightings that the public provided allowed modeling to be done to show where the whales may have originated and that or where they had been gathered when when whatever happened happened to cause well we only know about 118 but presumably there were many more so that data is so important because it's not only the really important chronological baseline it's also giving really specific information when there's an a, a unique mortality event an unusual event like the the 2018 Cuvier's beaked whales that came ashore. Yeah, definitely. And the public also provide some really detailed information as, as well, uh, whether that be through sightings or, or working on celery and the acoustic uh, work that we do is incredibly detailed and can have a, a, can show us a lot about how that, you know, the soundscape of the, of the environment is changing too. But just thinking about sort of detailed picture of, of something specific that can help us understand the environment, how the animals are using it and what may be needed to protect them. There are some really good examples from photo identification of the public submitting information and photographs that researchers, if they're collaborating as Mm. well, are able to track animals over large areas Mm. or over very small areas but over time so you were mentioning the other day Jenny the um, the humpback whales and killer whales and things yeah there's humpback whales and killer whales but also actually this week right now mm-hmm. um, Casey who is a minke whale in our catalogue suspected to be female because right. uh, has historically been seen with a calf but has this year been seen for the 20th year in a really really small area seen in the same place every single year actually just off Col, so just to the northwest of here and Casey is easy to recognise because she, they, have got big nicks in their fins that look like a K, basically. Yes. So a member of the public has sent a photo into us again of Casey. And also Andy Tate, who goes out on Sea Life Mole, he has given amazing contributions to marine conservation. Over the last kind of 25, 30 years, he got an incredible photo and sent it into us. So knowing that Casey is coming and using these waters every single year and feeding because mm. we can document the feeding behaviour... It just really strengthens the argument that this is an important area. And that photo identification is across many species. So, for example, humpback whales. We get a small number of humpback whales, we think, come through our waters every year in the Hebrides. They're here to feed and gorge themselves. And uh, in the last couple of years, there's been incredible work done by the Scottish Humpback Whale ID catalogue. And it's a group of volunteers. And it's people just taking interest and taking photographs and sending it in. And they've been able to match a humpback whale that's been seen. Again, it was just 
seen last week off the Isle of Lewis and it was seen the previous year. Yeah, it's incredible. We're able to map the journeys of some of these animals. They go to places that we would never know about and oh, um, do journeys from the Hebrides across to the Firth of Forth, for example. And we wouldn't know about it unless people told us um, and took an interest. So it's really, really important that people care and want to contribute and spark an interest. Yeah. And if you think about it, it's a single photograph that somebody might be sending in, what that can potentially tell you about an individual if you have enough of those kinds of contributions it's really yeah quite inspiring just that one photograph that a member of the Mm. public sends in with a bit of information about where and when they Mm. saw that animal can help build such an important picture of an individual animal's life and potentially also how a wider population is using an area yeah it's a really important partnership isn't it and and there's a kind of third element in there that you mentioned just briefly is the wildlife tourism or sea life tourism really that has increased dramatically really on on Mullen Iona in in the last Mm -hmm. 10 years or so but that often what I see in social media the information is coming from you know one of the staff of boats or and it's a very very quick way for the information to be disseminated isn't it? Yeah we're really lucky that we work with a number of different tour operators up the west coast We deliver WISE training, so we not only train them in species ID so that they can hopefully give the Mm. best experience to their guests, but also mainly how to behave responsibly around the wildlife to minimise disturbance. And through um, that process and through that training, yeah, we develop a great partnership with people. And now we have lots of tour operators that report their sightings to us. It just extends our reach and the data that's coming in is really valuable. Photographs, videos of behaviours, particularly I'm thinking about like bottlenose dolphins. Um, we have the Barra Boys or the US Ladies as there's a <laughs> petition I hear to rename them. <laughs> yeah, it's information like that that we just can't collect by ourselves. We have few encounters from Silurian with bottlenose dolphins, coastal bottlenose dolphins. So we really, really rely on people to get involved. And yeah, tour operators are a great example of that. Yeah, it's a fabulous extension of your outreach, really, isn't it? Yeah. And we mentioned the anthropogenic sound uh, as as being the focus of the Onsonora Seas project as a threat to cetacean life in this area and worldwide, sadly. What else do we know about as being the major threats at the moment to... In, in addition to sound. in addition to the sound pollution. So in addition to sound, there are a number of challenges that whales and dolphins face. As I mentioned earlier, our seas in general are getting busier, more noisy and more polluted. And that pollution comes in many different forms. I mean, acoustic sound and noise is a type of pollution which many people overlook. Yes. And for whales and dolphins, that is a really important one to consider because of how much they rely on sound but thinking in terms of some of the other problems you know overfishing and potentially the lack of prey is a is a consideration and the actual other direct impacts of the fishing industry which can include bycatch and entanglement so pollution many people think of as plastics or macro pollution but you also get micro pollution and chemical pollution which has impacted and we we know has impacted populations uh, particularly killer whales in Scottish waters so there's a number of different threats and one of the biggest and most challenging questions is how that all comes together to create the cumulative impact Mm. that all of those pressures together Mm. create a kind of cocktail Mm. of threat of Mm. pressure that individually an animal may be able to feed or may be able to avoid a fishing net but actually cumulatively if those pressures are all in the same place that has a, a detrimental effect on energy budgets on being able to survive and thrive and breed and all of those things so you get the sort of direct 
impact and then you get the cumulative impact as well which is, is much harder to study and much harder to understand and then on top of all that you've got things like climate change of which course. is um, a really big issue we are seeing changes here in the Hebrides that we believe may be linked to climate change such as the increase in common dolphin numbers which um, appears to be related to sea surface temperature although there could be other drivers of that it's, it's inconclusive at the moment but those kinds of big changes that we're seeing in the natural world, changes to biodiversity, changes to the climate, will be affecting how the animals can use the environment. It's such a contrast to the experience that you have, or that I had when I was on the Silurian. We know these threats are there, but I think they're so concealed, but especially around the Hebrides, by the beauty of the waters, and it's such a, on the surface, pristine environment. And I think it's only by engaging directly that you understand how complex the landscape below the water is and how industrialised it's become over the last 100 years and that that's very concealed. It's certainly with the sound pollution, without the technology of the hydrophone, Jenny, we wouldn't we wouldn't be able to experience the level of noise below that apparently beautiful surface that we hear the noises of nature but actually when you put those headphones on you're hearing industrial noise yeah so some of the main things that we hear is boat noise dredging if you've ever um listened on the hydrophone when you're going past a dredger it's I didn't very hear, very no, noisy I, never, I didn't hear that very noisy mm. um sonar mm. acoustic deterrent devices around mm. fish farms are all really really loud sounds and it's really difficult for us to imagine how that can impact well, because we use vision as our primary sense, whales and dolphins are using sound for pretty much everything. Like Alison said, it's for navigation, for communication with other individuals, but also for finding food. A lot of the species in our waters are echolocating to find their food. So when these sounds are so loud, it can actually stop them doing any of that. And it can not only prevent them from feeding, communicating, navigating, but it can have immediate impacts on them. When we spoke a couple of weeks ago, Alison, you described an experience when you were diving that you spoke to me about that, that you felt was as close as you might get to the kind of experience that a cetacean would have encountering a loud noise. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was actually reflecting on the wonderful exhibition that you created and how at a certain point there's a very cleverly done piece of the composition that really almost sort of goes inside of your ears and it's a very strange way of uh, describing it but it doesn't feel like the sound is on the outside of your ears it feels like it's in your ears in your head uh, you feel completely surrounded by it and that reminded me very much of an experience I had when I was diving and I was under the water when a speedboat went over the top now I was nowhere near it I was completely safe but there was a speedboat in the vicinity and the engine noise was incredibly loud and it wasn't loud in the way that you would experience loud noises in my experience on land mm. and with mm. human ears mm. it was loud inside of my it's mind like, mm. I could feel the vibration mm. I could feel it sort of inside because that water is also right up against your ears so it's a really different it feels very different from noise as we perceive it in our day-to-day -day lives 
And it's the same if you ever do a night dive. The water is dark and it completely surrounds you and it mm. can almost make you feel claustrophobic mm. because everything's travelling through the water or in the sense of light mm. in, the, in the nighttime, not travelling through the water. Mm. So I thought that piece of the exhibition, but also that way of perceiving sound, it will be very different underwater to how we perceive it in the air and on land because sound just travels so differently, so differently. through water yes. and it and it really is even for us and it will be much much worse and more sensitive for a cetacean because their their biology is different but even for us you can feel it very much more inside of and the vibrations of it mm. and it's it's a really unpleasant feeling which you get a sense of from the exhibition which is really really well done I think. Thank you for saying that and what possibly happened with the the Cuviers in 2018 was that perhaps there was an interference in their soundscape which disorientated them and and caused them to develop something equivalent to the bends that human divers experience. Yeah and that word disorientation is spot on actually Mm. because I didn't mention it, but not only do you feel the sound almost inside of your head, you've no idea where it's coming from. Yes. It is completely disorientating, Mm. and you can see how a loud noise coming out of nowhere could create those kinds of uh, basically avoidance responses that may mean animals move differently through the water and therefore get the bends, or try to avoid it, and if they can't, potentially it causes injury. Mm. So... Yeah, it's a hard one for, I think, humans to understand because our biology is so different, but sound is just so incredibly important for cetaceans, for whales and dolphins, and the way that it moves through water is why it's important for them, firstly. And then this additional noise we create in the marine environment is very often impulsive loud noises that are not natural mean that it's a real challenge for these animals an aspect of the trust work that we, we haven't touched on yet is the specific research trips that are done during the Joint Warrior exercise twice a year. Mm-hmm. And I know that that happens with full cooperation from the Ministry of Defence and that Silurian is allowed to be present in the waters while the exercises are taking place. And it's without that visual monitoring and also without that acoustic monitoring that happens during that exercise, it would be really hard to even start to piece a jigsaw together that indicates any impact of particularly military sonar, mid-range military sonar on cetacean behaviour, wouldn't it? So on those joint warrior surveys, what we're doing is trying to monitor the increased activity, increased sound activity, and we're especially looking for changes in behaviour mm-hmm. of whales and dolphins under these conditions. And even in the short time that we've been monitoring it, which is since 2009, we have detected changes. So a massive decrease in calling behaviour of common dolphins, which was mm. interesting, or breaching minke whales, porpoising minke whales, which mm. is a very unusual behaviour mm. for them. And it's trying to not necessarily build a picture, but see whether it is influencing them. And, and these changes in behaviour are, are a really great indicator of the impact on these animals. What's also important for the monitoring that we delivered during Joint Warrior is that it is part of a long-term data set as well. So we are looking about what's happening in the environment at the time. We are documenting and recording the increased sound in the environment, the the change in the soundscape, as well as any unusual behaviour or the behaviour that we're seeing 
visually or through the acoustics of the animals that we're encountering but we're also comparing that against times when that's not happening Um, and that's really really vital it's part of the long-term monitoring program so just going out during joint warrior wouldn't be that valuable it's part of the wider long-term monitoring that makes it interesting and we can document unusual behavior but in isolation you know that shows some level of disturbance but we kind of already know that happens actually what we are looking at is potentially over the longer term is this exercise having an impact only at the time does it potentially change what we're seeing over the longer term do we find that animals move out of the area and maybe see less around the time of the exercise or you know we can there's a lot of things that we can answer because it's part of that long-term monitoring over different years different months and and a wider period of time so that's really important as part of the conversation about joint warrior is it's again it's part of the cumulative impacts it's part of the what's happening around the Hebrides at different times of year and how that might be affecting animal distribution at different times of year as well as at the time the animal behavior that Jenny described so it's all a really interesting topic to be looking at but is relatively data deficient and so Mm. we do need to be collecting that data we do need volunteers to join us to Mm. to help us collect that information and it is a really interesting time of year to be out um on the sea uh you know looking at what what's going on what's what's what the animals are doing it's really important to emphasize that that the it's data that's embedded in the context of, of 20 years of data collection and that's why it's powerful and that's why it's meaningful in terms of you sharing it with other agencies mm-hmm. because it's not in isolation. It's obvious that the Trust are the organisation best place to do the survey work during Joint Warrior and for that research to be seen within the wider context, this bigger picture that you're able to present. The exhibition has captured an amazing way of immersing people into that environment in a way that we as researchers and doing public engagement find it really difficult to do. It's been such a privilege to work on this project with you because you've been able to bring it to a completely different audience but such an amazing topic that is so difficult to communicate Um, and you've done such a brilliant job of that so it's been such, yeah, we've absolutely loved being involved with this project on you. It's something that Andrew Brownlow and I talked about as well, just about the, the different way to tell a story. So science has its vocabulary and the arts have their vocabulary. And I think when you can combine those two with meaningful intention and research behind it, which I was fortunate enough to get access to through uh, my experience of working with the Trust with you guys. So I hope it has opened a door for people into the challenges of the marine environment, the cetaceans in particular, but also it's given people something positive that they can contribute to. And I think that's so important that we don't feel hopeless, that we don't feel that there's there's nothing as a single human being that we can do to make a difference. What you've we've spoken about this morning so clearly demonstrates the huge part that the public play in the work of the Trust. And that's an incredibly hopeful and purposeful thing to go away with. So no, thank you for your time and talking a bit more about that. Thanks for involving us. It's been lovely. So it's a lovely day. And I think it would be really nice if we take a trip down to the harbour and and talk a bit about the kind of cetaceans we might see from Tobermory and also your kind of favourite cetacean experience. Let's go and do that. Thank you very much. (laughs) 
We're sitting down at Tobermory Harbour. It's a gorgeous morning and this is where the saloon departs from when it goes in its citizen science trips. Yep. And Jenny, you mentioned some terms earlier on when we were talking about the data that's collected. And I wonder if you could just expand on that a little bit and explain a little bit more about the visual and acoustic data. Yeah, of course. Um, so we do different types of data collection on board. As soon as you come on board, you get trained up in all of our data collection methods. Um, and so we train people up in how to spot and identify the species that we have locally or hopefully might see on Silurian surveys. We have two people that stand up at the front, right next to the mast, and spot in their quadrants for different species. We record all of that data, including creels and also rubbish as well that we might encounter. Um, and then we can map it all at the end of the year. So what are people looking for? Are they looking for, is it a shape of a fin? Is it how the cetacean is moving in the water? What are the kind of clues that give somebody like me who doesn't come from a scientific cetacean marine biology background, what would you say to me, you know, here's what you need to look out for if you want to spot common dolphin, here's what you need to look out for for, you know, what makes a minky whale outline <laughs> different from a harbour porpoise, say? I think you've absolutely nailed that there because I think it is quite species specific and again all this training happens as you get on board but it can be different things like splashes in the distance on the horizon is quite typical of common dolphins. Minky whales you get a long roll of the back and the dorsal fin two thirds mm. of the way along the back but we're using other clues in the environment to try and identify where the animals might be as well like for example feeding birds Manx shearwaters are a great indicator that there might be minke whales feeding in the area diving gannets are also a great indicator of common dolphins yeah so it really varies porpoises uh, one of my favorite species to mm -hmm. see it's just a really quick roll of the back through the water so often what you're looking for is a glint and a great place to spot them is along tide lines where they like to feed Oh, okay, so that's harbour porpoise could be seen quite easily from land then? Definitely, yeah. Okay. We have some amazing places to spot harbour porpoises. Um, and actually, where you're from, down on Iona, mm -hmm. there's often uh, bottlenose dolphin sightings yes. down in the sand yes. of Iona. Um, and really, there's no easy way to describe how to spot bottlenose dolphins because they're often leaping right in front of the ferry. Um, <laughs> that's and right. Can be quite predictable. Yeah, I know, that's right. And my cousin's actually the skipper of the Iona ferry, and, and quite often you see him doing quite a detour, and you know <laughs> it's not because of tides, and <laughs> then you see the dolphins, and you think, yeah, he's giving the visitors a show. It's a lovely sight. It's yeah. always really exciting when, when, um, when that happens in the sound of Iona. And the acoustic data is different, isn't it? Can you explain a little bit about the hydrophone and, and how that works? Yeah, of course. So we tow a hydrophone, which is an underwater microphone, and it's got special elements in it that are really tailored for exactly what we are trying to collect data on. And we've got two high-frequency elements which are mainly targeted at collecting harbour porpoise data. Porpoises, if you've ever seen one before, you'll know they are very small mm -hmm. and in any kind of sea can be quite difficult to detect visually. So we detect them acoustically. So anytime that there are porpoises clicking out to about 450 meters from our hydrophone that's towed behind our vessel, we can detect harbour porpoises that way. I had a day on a survey this year where it was particularly big seas. We were in about two meters of swell and even despite that managed to detect 
eight harbour porpoises visually. I went back through the data in the evening and we had 33 harbour porpoise different detections through the day. So yeah, it's really expanding our data collection and strengthening the data that we're collecting. Absolutely, and I remember when I went out in 2021, we would have hours without a sighting of a harbour porpoise, but then later on in the evening when Becky was going through the computer data, she was saying, no, there's been 30, 40. <laughs> so I, I can really appreciate that the acoustic data is, is so critical. It really gives you a, a whole other picture, doesn't it? Definitely, and it's not just porpoise data that we're collecting. We're also collecting other anthropogenic sounds, so we are monitoring the soundscape. And because we've been collecting the data in the exact same way for the last 20 years this year, mm. Yeah, we can really detect changes over time and our seas are definitely getting noisier in that time. So we can monitor changes in like boat noise, for example. Um, we can listen out for acoustic deterrent devices around fish farms, sonar. Mm. Yeah, and we can record how that is changing and unfortunately increasing um, through our data set. It's a really important aspect of your work and it was what pulled me into the work of the Trust in the first place because of the whale that came ashore on Iona um, in 2018 and wanting to find out a bit more about that. But if we turn to what we might see, now we're right down at the edge of the water here. <laughs> Alison, could you, I know you're, you're just back from a trip, can you tell us a little bit about what you saw during that trip and also your best ever, sure, <laughs> your sure. best ever cetacean sighting? Okay, so the trip that I've just come back from, we had a, a fairly rough weather trip. It was fairly low visibility, quite big seas. A few gales came through mm. whilst we were out for the 12 days. So our sightability conditions were not ideal, but we did still have 74 sightings Amazing. of whales, dolphins, porpoises. So a really good um, amount of data coming in there. And the three kind of main species that we were seeing of cetacean were minke whales and harbour porpoise and we also had an incredible sighting of bottlenose dolphins oh lovely and uh, we also had some common dolphins whilst mm -hmm. we were out as well mm -hmm. so the, the probably the standout sighting for me of that trip were some feeding minke whales so there were four in a, in a sort of large area around Collinsay and they were they were very clearly feeding and um, foraging for food mm. and that was um, a really amazing sighting when we see minke whales we do photo identification on them so we uh, approach the animal under a research license and we take photographs of their dorsal fin to see if we recognise that particular animal. So we spent a bit of time in one of the few calm days we had mm. trying to get photographs of those. And then on our way back, on our final day, I uh, felt like we really earned the sighting. We had a really amazing encounter with bottlenose dolphins. They are really coastal around here. Mm -hmm. The pod that we have, the Inner Hebridean pod, very coastal distribution. So we really don't see them very often when we're out on survey mm. further away from land. Mm. That tends to where we see common dolphins but this group we were coming into anchor in the bay at muck and the bottlenose dolphins followed us in and then spent a good half an hour um, with us while we were taking photo id of their fins again and then as we were trying to anchor they moved off and then they came back and spent another hour whilst we were sat at anchor boat not moving engines off just around the boat socially interacting with each other it was incredible so that was a really amazing sighting they came so close to the boat whilst we were just stationary and stopped and everything was quiet and yeah we've we've we were also able to record not on our hydrophone because it's it's on it's, a long yes. course we had it pulled in but we managed to record some of their vocalizations on our gopro which we popped in the oh, water wonderful. so you could hear them yeah. squeaking oh. and like the kind of like almost like creaking noises that they make the little which is clicks uh -huh. slightly different uh -huh. to the common dolphins which we'd heard throughout mm. the rest of the trip so that was a yeah we had some really great sightings even though the weather was slightly challenging, challenging. yeah um, but I think my favourite sighting, my favourite encounter with animals, 
It's so hard because each one's so different. If I'm thinking about sightings from vessels and when we're out on Silurian, probably the minke whales have been my favourite sightings. Mm. I was once out on a teen expedition, so mm-hmm. when we take the teenagers out on Silurian, and we had an incredible associating minke whale that came up around the boat, really calm water. You could see the white patches, yes. we call them minke mittens, on its pectoral fins mm. as it came up around the boat. It blew bubbles, mm. it showed us its underbelly. <laughs> it was absolutely incredible. And again, we got some really great photo ID of that animal. And there's something about a large whale associating with you. You make eye contact with these animals occasionally and you can see they're really inquisitive. Mm. And there's something about that with these large animals that's it's really special. And you feel a connection there that you maybe weren't expecting when you get close like that. I think that that's, you know, you've just just really described that experience perfectly, Alison, and and it surprised me when I was out with Becky and with the, the two crew in 2021 that although they were, you know, experienced cetacean observers, they all got equally as excited if not more than I did every time we spot we spotted something and it's hard not to you know what you described off when you anchored at muck with the bottlenose dolphins that they seem to have as much curiosity about us yeah as we do about them and I think there is a beautiful exchange there and it's I know I'm not romanticizing it in any way but I think people do feel a genuine you know, you used the word association, the term association, but there is a real human desire to connect with these non-human cetaceans. I think there's a mystery mm. because they spend so much of their time underwater where we can't, uh, we, we can't see them. We, uh, you know, we don't see them. And then they come up for these fleeting glimpses and you never know when. You mm. never know what you're going to see. You never know where you're going to see it. You never know the behaviour you're going to see. And for me, it's that mystery, it's that the anticipation of not knowing what you're going to see each time that it makes it exciting still however many animals you've seen but also really I think builds that feeling of wanting to make a connection because you don't know what it is you're going to encounter you don't know what it is you're going to experience and it's different every time for each individual animal they are all unique they're all individuals at the end of the day each individual animal as well as each species is going to do something different and you learn something every time you you encounter an animal it's a wonderful experience to have and Jenny having been aboard the boat many times I'm sure you've got a few favorite ones to share with us as well I do I started out for the trust as a volunteer back in 2016 which seems like ages ago now Mm. but I was particularly lucky on my very first ever Silurian trip we were up off Lewis off Chumpen it's an incredible place to spot from land there's some really dedicated people up there but from Silurian we got this incredible encounter with a humpback whale oh Um, gosh it was around us for about half an hour Um, it stuck with us rather than the other way around after we got our incredible Mm -hmm. uh, fluke shots for photo ID Um, and yeah it was going under the bowsprit and rolling over and having a look at us and it was just such a special experience that I've seen whales all over the world and that one really sticks with me not only because of the interaction that we had with the whale but also the people that you're with you get really kind of bonded to people when you have an Mm. experience like that Mm. yeah really really special they are unique lifetime experiences when I was out in 2021 we were you know following joint warrior around backwards and forwards across the minch you know we had 
had similar sea conditions to what you were describing earlier, Alison, you know, three metre swell and 30, 35 mile an hour winds. So a lot of the time your focus was on keeping your balance yeah. and, <laughs> you know, never mind actually trying to spot anything. But, but you were really conscious, I was really conscious that I was there to try and do a job. We had a very calm anchorage off Loch Boysdale one night and as we, we set off early in the morning, one of the crews spotted just a glint, a reflection, and it was John Cohen Aquarius of the West Coast community, the killer whales. That is not a commonplace experience to have, and it felt like such a privilege on my first outing to be able to see them. You know, it was it was a tremendous experience. And you do feel an immediate bond with your fellow humans sharing that. Yeah, they're lifetime experiences, I think, and that's part of what the Trust can offer, isn't it, as well? Yeah, I think what I would say is, you know, whilst I've focused on my my favourite sort of vessel-based sightings, which um, are inevitably different than the sightings you'd have from land, I do think that some of my best encounters have actually been from land, mm. um, especially here where we live on Mull and mm. other places around mm. the West Coast. We have these amazing vantage points where you really can see for a long way. Mm. So you can actually see a lot greater distance. You can see a lot more and your, your presence is absolutely not affecting their behaviour. So yes. you get a really really different side of the animals. I remember sitting on a headland near Kilt Rock at Skye and watching a group of common dolphins, huge, huge pod of common dolphins, really far away. And you could see the group get very excited at a certain point and all start to jump around and leap around. And it looked like this part of the water was boiling. Amazing. And it was because I think some sort of feeding behavior might yes. be happening. Yes, yes. Yeah, amazing. And you can see that, as you say, you're seeing that from land. You're not in any way stepping into their territory. Your presence isn't causing any distress or distraction. Yeah. for them at all. And it's just incredible watching yeah, their natural behaviour, mm. just doing what they're doing and getting to witness that from a distance is also yeah, really great and some beautiful sightings around here from land too. Mm. It's been so wonderful to talk to you both and the harbour is actually beginning to get a little bit busy now as we're coming to the end of our conversation but yeah, how wonderful to be able to sit here and talk about cetaceans and the work of the Trust right at the water's edge on a glorious day in July so... Thank you both very much and thank you for all the support that the Trust have given on Sonorous Seas. It's been a great experience. Thank you so much. It's been amazing to be part of the project. Yeah, really inspiring. Thank you. On Sonorous Seas is a story told with the voices of science, art, music and poetry and it explores the impact of military sonar and the ecology of the seas surrounding the Hebrides. The project is supported by the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust, the Scottish Association for Marine Science, Scottish Marine Animal Stranding Scheme and the National Museum of Scotland. On Sonorous Seas is funded through Antoper and Mull Theatre, Creative Scotland, The Space CIC, Culture, Heritage and Arts, Argyll and Isles and AN Bursaries. The sounds in this podcast series have been used with kind permission of the Hebridean Whale and Dolphin Trust and the Scottish Association for Marine Science. This podcast was co-produced by Barry Killin and Fergus Hall, edited by Fergus Hall, with sound compositions by Fergus Hall.